turn again to the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 8. We've been spending quite a bit of time in this chapter. It's because it's so dense. There's so much here, so much good, rich truth here for us. And this morning, we're going to consider this idea that we have a Savior who is, and I have dot, dot, dot down in on the title there, so we'll see how we fill in that blank. A Savior who is, but as we begin, I, I like to start by helping us think in terms of human realities for a little bit. Before we get to the divine, I want us to start with some of the human realities, some of the things that we can all relate to in our everyday lives. And along those lines, I want you to think about this, okay? If you had to fill in the blank, I am blank. If you had to identify yourself, sort of define yourself, I am blank. This is rhetorical, so don't say it out loud. But what would you, what would you fill that blank in with? What, what word would you use there? Perhaps as followers of Jesus, assuming that we are here being together at church this morning, we may say, I'm you know, a Christian, I am a follower of Christ, something like that. But if you fill it in without reference to your faith, you may say something about a, a certain attribute, certain physical characteristic. You may say, I am tall or I am short or I am big or I am small. You, you may fill it in with regard to some kind of accomplishment. I am a professor or I am a doctor, or I am a clerk, or I am whatever, some kind of professional attribute, or maybe some more general, I, I am successful, or, or more negative, I, I am unsuccessful. In our world, we are, we are told in a variety of ways, whether explicitly or implicitly, we are told that our mental health has to do with how we view ourselves to a very large degree. Our sense of security has to do with how we, how we view ourselves, how we understand ourselves, how we esteem ourselves, or the alternative, how, how we fail to esteem ourselves. Our world tells us that in a variety of ways, as if somehow you know, our mental health, our mental well-being begins and ends with our understanding of ourselves, how we might, for example, fill in that blank, I am blank. That's out there in the world, and, and there's a sense in which that's inside the church sometimes too. We, we often think in terms of our place, whether, again, as a believer, or we think in terms of our, maybe our family says, well, our, I am a, a father, maybe a good father, or maybe I am a not-so-good father, but, I, but I, I value that standard of being a good father, maybe something like that. Maybe a position, I, I am a pastor, I am a deacon, I am this, I am that. Or, or I am a, a member of this family, my, my family name, I have this heritage, this Christian family. So we have our inside the church ways of thinking as well. And all of us would say, if we're honest, we want to feel good about whatever we put in that blank, don't we? I mean, even if we can't feel good about whatever we would put in that blank, we would want to feel good about it. Whatever we say, I am this, we would want to feel good about that. That's normal. That's natural. This morning we're going to consider in John chapter 8, Jesus' great I am statement. And we're going to come to see that, that how we understand ourselves can be so deeply and greatly helped and liberated by how we understand Christ, how we understand Him. That as, as followers of Jesus, we are invited to, to think first and foremost about who He is more so than who we are, and our greatest sense of security and joy 
and freedom comes from the identity of Jesus first and how we find ourselves in relationship with him. Our passage, David read it earlier, it's kind of a lengthy passage. Some of it we're going to hit just some high points, but we're building up to verse 58. I want you to look at verse 58. It's toward the end of the passage. But we're building up to this point in Jesus' interaction. Let me just remind you of the context as you're looking there. Jesus' interaction with the religious Jews, people steeped in religiosity, okay? They're committed to their rituals and their traditions and the law, and they, they would claim to be diligent, dedicated followers of God, and yet they're in this debate with God. God is there in the flesh. Jesus is right there talking with them, and they're debating him, and they're arguing with him, and they're resisting and rejecting him. This is what we've been seeing week by week. And it's all building up to this kind of climactic moment where in verse 58, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that is like the mic drop moment. An explosive moment when he says that. And you look at what happens next in verse 59. They picked up stones to throw at him. It's a big deal. I mean, he had been offended. You know, someone's like chipping away, kind of offending you little by little. They're just getting you know, underneath your skin little bit, little bit, little bit. And then they, there's some big punch and you just explode, right? I know none of you can relate to that. But let's just say maybe something like that's happened. Well, listen, Jesus has been probing He's been pulling down the veneer, the facade of religiosity. He's been probing to the deepest recesses of their hearts. And they're at this point where they're offended, they're offended, they're offended, and then they just blow up. And now he needs to die. They're ready to execute him. So what we're going to do is we're going to build up to that climax. What is it that he was saying? And what is the significance of his I am statement? That's what we're going to consider together this morning. And again, I think it's going to help us significantly and maybe even minister some, some, some healing to you right where you're at in your life. Look at verse 45. We're going to start there. Jesus says, and this is in terms of the Savior who is, well, first of all here, He, he is a Savior who is truth. He, he's the embodiment of truth. And it says in verse 45, He speaks the truth. Notice, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. And actually go on to verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? So again, Jesus is pointing to himself as the source of truth. They had, as religious people, lots of information in their minds. They knew their Old Testament really well. Many of them did. They had heads full of information. But they were lacking when it comes to truth. And as a result of that, as a consequence of that, they were also lacking when it comes to freedom. Because we know it's the truth that sets you free. Jesus said that earlier in chapter 8. So the implication is if you don't have the truth, then what? Well, then you're in bondage, then you're enslaved, and these are people enslaved, and Jesus is patiently pleading with them, though they continue to resist and argue with him. So he says, I speak the truth, and yet you don't believe me. And he goes on to explain why it is they don't believe him, and he says it's because you're not of God. Now, now how offensive can you get? I mean, these are... These are God's people. These are the children of Abraham. What do you mean you're not of God? Well, that's what he said to him because they missed it. They missed the essence of the heart of God. They were really understanding God. So if you, if you, have, the, if you have the wrong perception of God, then you don't really have God. And Jesus is saying you don't, you don't, you're not really of God. He is Savior who speaks truth. And then next, He is a Savior who is sinless. Verse 46 
right in the middle there, really in the beginning of the verse, but tucked between his statements about the truth. He says, which one of you convicts me of sin? So he knows that they have in their minds, if they've not yet spoken them, they at least in their minds have these accusations, don't they? they I mean, they have, these, they have this account, these allegations in their minds. And so Jesus asked them, well, which of you convicts me of sin? Knowing they're questioning his credibility, can you convict me of anything? Can you convict me of anything that would stick? Any kind of accusation that would stick? And we know the answer to that, don't we? Of course not. This is a sinless son of God. There's nothing they could point to. Every moment of his life, loving and serving his father, loving and serving the people around him, so selfless, so sacrificial, so loving, so kind, so merciful. We've been seeing that all throughout the Gospel of John. And he's been proclaiming that he is the source of spiritual life, that he is God, very God in their midst, and he is offering them life. He says, I'm the bread of life, and I'm the water of life, and I'm the light of life. All those things we've been seeing right in the immediate context, the preceding context. And as they're questioning, and as they're accusing him, he says, which one of you can convict me of sin? And the answer is, none of them. He is sinless. Notice next, verse 48 and following, he says that he is, he is glorious. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Actually, jump down to verse 54 for a moment. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. There's an irony here. In one sense, Jesus is kind of, he's deflecting glory. He's not demanding glory. He's not proclaiming his own glory. But he's saying, but my Father glorifies me. You see, Jesus is the most glorious person to ever walk this earth. We have our human forms of it. In fact, going back to how we started the message this morning, as we think about mental health and what society says we need for mental health and what sometimes the church says we need for mental health, often it's put in terms of, well, you need to to get some credit. You need to be admired. You need to be appreciated. You need to get hearts and likes and retweets and shares and... Remember, um, I used to love the little floaty thumbs. Where did those go? I, don't, I haven't seen those recently. You just, like the little reels and things, and there'd be the, the floaty thumbs going on. You need to get a lot of floaty thumbs. You, you need that kind of credit. And here's Jesus self-denying. Not demanding the glory, though he is worthy of all glory, but just says, my Father gives me glory. And this was vexing to them. Couldn't make sense of it. Who is this guy? And who does he think he is? He's, he's crazy. Samaritan. Demon-possessed. Samaritan, of course, being, in their minds, kind of low-life half-breeds. Oh, he's, don't even listen to this guy. Don't even pay attention to him. Or he, if anything, he's, he's, got, he's got a demon, which is our way of saying he's nuts. He's just out of his mind. He's crazy. Don't listen to him. And here he is, humbly serving. And he'd certainly done plenty of glorious things with the healings and showing his amazing wisdom and his teaching. And if they hadn't seen firsthand, they at least had heard of those things and yet still rejecting. Isn't it amazing how blind we humans can be? That God is right there in their midst and all his glory is being displayed as he's serving and giving and loving and healing. And yet, they're just not getting it. 
And they're thinking that he's crazy. And he's challenging their way. You know, the Pharisees, uh, and aren't we all Pharisees to one degree or another, but the Pharisees often did what they did, the good things they did to be seen by others. They, they wanted the glory. Earlier in John's Gospel, we, we saw where Jesus mentioned and he kind of diagnosed theirs. He said, hey, you, you, you pass glory back and forth. All day, every day, you're just sort of lifting one another up and seeing who's going to be the most impressive and who's going to be the most knowledgeable and who's going to be the most this or the most that. It's just big glory fest, just a big competition for them. And that's, that's the human tendency, isn't it? To pursue that glory. And as I said earlier, to, to believe that somehow that's really the stuff of life. That's really going to make me feel satisfied or complete if I can just get some credit. And Jesus is the opposite of that. We were talking with, we had dinner with the Spiritos uh, recently, and we were talking about this well-known episode of the show Seinfeld. Some of you have probably seen it over the years, old show now. But George Costanza, who's kind of the, the least liked, there's many non-likable characters in that show, but he's the least likable character, and yet somehow you can't look away. You just keep watching the guy. But anyway, there's one episode where he's in an Italian restaurant, some kind of like a pizza place, and he goes up to pay for his order, and there's a tip jar on the counter. And he goes to put his tip in, and he notices just as he's putting the tip in, the worker turns away from him and doesn't see it going in the jar. So you know what he does next? He reaches back in to take it back out so he can wait for a more opportune time when they see him to put it back in. There's been so many times where I'm in a place, a setting like that, and I'm putting it, and I think about that, because I'm like, oh yeah, please see me doing it. Hey, let's see, this is for you. I'm one of the nice, good tipper guys. I'm not the other kind. We, we, we want to be seen, known, admired for little things like that or the big things, don't we? It's natural. And Jesus is here, the living God, the one worthy of all glory, and yet in such a humble way, it's, it's amazing. And, and so that's the, ironically, true glory. True glory is, is not demanding in, in a very real sense. It's... It's his glory of being the man all men ought to be but are not. Humble servant. He says, my father glorifies me. So he's a savior who is truthful. He's a savior who is sinless. He's a savior who is glorious. Fourthly here, he's a savior who is life-giving. Look at verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. A bold statement. He's been saying this really throughout, but he keeps upholding himself as the source of life. And he says, hey, I'm here to offer you life in relationship with God, and that life never ends. In fact, that's your ticket to eternal life, to, to the other side. Eternal life begins here and now in relationship with God, but it goes on to the resurrection, our final hope. He says, if someone keeps my word, will never see death. His way of saying not that we'll never experience physical death, but spiritual death. You'll never taste of spiritual death, but we'll live forever with God. And throughout, you just see them kind of seething and accusing and saying, oh, he's crazy. It comes up a few times. I just can't. Receive what he's saying. Related to the life-giving nature of Christ, 
is where we now come to this amazing declaration where he says, I am. And it begins with this part of the debate where they bring up Abraham again. So look at verse 52. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. In other words, hearing you say, if someone keeps my words, he'll never see death. He's like, now, now we know you're crazy. Abraham died. The prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. I mean, who do you think you are? Really? I mean, Abraham, their forefather, that they were so proud of. Even he died. The prophets died. Who are you trying to make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. This is amazing. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So, okay, bring up Abraham. Yeah, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Another way of saying, if if Abraham were here now, he would be rejoicing. He would be believing in me. He would be following me. The irony, when they claim to be his descendants, and naturally speaking, they was his, his descendants, but spiritually speaking, they were proving themselves to not be. So they argue, they continue the argument. Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham And then there's the statement in verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. This is amazing. There's so much going on here. But on one level, you have Jesus challenging them. Challenging them to see that it it wasn't just about their, their natural heritage. Sure, they could claim that they were in this Abrahamic line. But if you don't know God, through Christ, none of that is really of value, spiritually speaking, in terms of eternal matters. It's of no value. Now again, they took great pride in that. They felt a great sense of security in their Abrahamic lineage. If you would have asked them to fill in the blank, I am, they probably would have said, I am a Jew. I am a a child of Abraham. It meant so much to them. So you see, Jesus is here. He's, he's challenging their I am statements. That's what he's doing. He's challenging the way they've come to identify themselves and come to try to establish an identity for themselves. He's cutting right to the depths of their heart. This is what we've been seeing all throughout John's Gospel. He did that with them and he does the same with us today. How is it that you understand yourself? What is it that you think you have to be able to take pride in or you just can't endure any more life? What has to be in that blank? Jesus is painting a contrast and saying, I am. And and his I am statement is the source of all good and all, whether it's creative, the creative order, created things from the beginning till now, all good when it comes to eternal things, spiritual realities, like He is the source of it all. He's the great I Am. He's the only one, the sinless one, the glorious one, the truthful one, the only one who can say, hey, if you keep my words, you'll never die. He's the great I Am. It's the present tense. It's, of course, a reference to the book of Exodus. He's claiming to be very God in their midst. 
And that's why they were so enraged. He calls their attention back there to the Exodus when God met with Moses, and Moses was a nervous wreck. Remember that? Because God called him to go and stand before Pharaoh, and he felt really scared and really insecure. And he's like, well, who am I supposed to say sent me? He says, just say, I am sent you. The I am God, the present God, the God who always has been and always will be. The everlasting God. The providing God. The God who has life within Himself. We've used this example before, but I can't help myself in this moment. There's such an energy crisis. You hear everyone talking about the energy crisis and climate change and things like that, and we're trying to figure out, and, and to some degree, we want to be a good steward of creation and so on and so forth, but I've, again, mentioned this for a few, time, a few times here in, in recent days, but I mean, the, the sun itself is running out. So go ahead, put the solar panels on. Maybe that'll do good for a little while, but the sun is running out eventually. All energy sources are limited God is not limited. Christ is saying, I am. It's just the way it is. I always have been. I always will be. I am. And so if I say to you, he who lives and believes in me will never die. He who believes in me, even though he dies elsewhere, he says, even though he dies physically, he will live forever spiritually. When he says that, you can take it to the bank. He's the only one that can say it. He's the only one with the credibility, with the authority to say it. The one who spoke everything into existence. And who will one day say to us, rise. Just like he said to Lazarus, and we will rise. Amen, right? His I am. Challenging their I am. And that was the best thing for them. It's what they needed. It's what we need. He pulled the facade down. He disrobed them. He disarmed them. He challenged their authority, their false sense of human honor. He challenged, he just completely stripped them down and said, you need me. I am your life. I'm everything. All the rituals, all the types and shadows and sacrifices and ceremonies and all of that. I am the sum and substance of all of that. I am the point of all of that. I am life. He said, I am, and he reduced all those other things to nothing. And that's why they were so angry. And sometimes there could be something within us when when God is working in our lives in such a way that things are just kind of falling apart. And whatever I would have wanted to put in the I am blank, it's like I can't put that in there anymore. Or it's maybe I am, and it's something not so good. I am a failure. Or, I am a divorcee. Or, I am unemployed. Or, I am angry. Or, I am this or that. And we self-identify. And we suffer. And we're burdened. And we're empty. And it's dark. I want to read to you for a moment from a book I had to read years ago. I was in a seminary course. It was a biblical counseling course, and we were required to read secular counseling resources to understand kind of how the issue of anxiety is being addressed in our culture and specifically among therapists out there. And so we had to read a lot of these resources, and I found them helpful just to become more informed in terms of what the approaches are, and there's some really helpful like descriptions and illustrations of 
anxiety and depression in, in this book and others that I read. And, and I, I uh, stumbled into this one section of this book. I want to read it to you for a moment. And I just want you to think about it, okay? And again, this is specifically addressing the matter of anxiety, depression, which all of us experience in this fallen world to a degree, but of course there are others who are crippled by it. But just, just listen, okay? Wherever you find yourself on that spectrum. We've often found that people struggling with anxiety problems take on their, worry, their worries, anxieties, and fears as their very identity. It's very easy to become so fused with and trapped by thoughts like, I am shy or I am depressed, that we don't even notice when it happens. Every time you say, I am, dot, 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 you become what comes after the I am. In this case, shyness or depression. You are literally it. You become the very thing you most dread, and that is hurtful. Interesting, it's like they're saying when you try to identify yourself and define yourself, so often that is harmful. It's interesting. A few more words from this section here. author goes on to say this. How do I drop the rope? And by rope, it means the tug of war in my own heart and mind when I'm struggling with my life, my circumstances, and my worries and anxieties and fears related to my life and my circumstances. So he's describing that mental, internal, psychological tug of war. And he says this, How do I drop the rope when my mind keeps throwing these evaluative, I am this or that, and I'm not good enough statements at me? The answer is as simple as it is baffling. I am neither this nor that, but instead, I am. I am that I am. Answering the question, who am I really, with a simple disarming I am, allows you to drop all those evaluative self-statements your mind constantly dishes out to you. It's the simplest and easiest way to drop the rope once and for all, anytime. No more arguments, explanations, justifications, and so on. I am that I am. Now, in this book, they basically said the silent part out loud. Just basically be God and you'll be okay. Now, obviously, I don't agree with that. And you don't agree with that. But here's what I want you to get out of that. You and I all experience this I am stuff in our heads. And underneath it all, as I said earlier, we want to feel like, what we want to say is like, I am a big deal. That's what we want to say. I am something. And, and there are irreligious ways of pursuing that I am whatever. And there are many, and I know many of them being plagued by them myself, all too many in the religious world too, I am whatever, this or that. In fact, I remember a good book I read years ago on spiritual maturity and gospel-enriched, grace-saturated spiritual maturity, and it said this, preoccupation with self in the name of God is still preoccupation with self. And so often that's where we find ourselves. In fact, the church sometimes preaches that to us. Just look at yourself, reform yourself, renovate yourself, fix yourself. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, figure out who you are. I am this, even as a good, moral, whatever person. He says, I am and I'm your life. 
And whatever fruitfulness of love and joy and peace, they come out of the essence of who I am and your relationship with me by grace through faith. And that is the greatest source of healing and freedom. It's the only source I would contend. And the one thing this book did have right is when we do that to ourselves, it is a fool's errand. We do in a sense, God kind of I think says to us, all right, fine, you want to be the speaker of truth in your life? Go for it. See how that goes for you. I'll be waiting. And then we finally find ourselves in despair and broken down and beaten down by the condemnation in our own heads, by the not-enoughness of our lives. And then He welcomes us back and says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, what? Rest. And we can just go, and exhale. Because He is Because His I Am stands forever. And there is no insecurity in Him. And there's no lack of joy in Him. And there's no lack of contentment in Him. There's no lack of anything in Him. Paul says in Colossians, you are complete in Him. And that word complete is not just like everything's okay. You are filled up to the full. He's given you all the fullness from a spiritual perspective you could ever need. He's given to you. And that is amazing. And it's all of grace. It's not earned. It's not merited. It's not I am because I merited or I am because I deserve or I am because I did. It's just He is. He is the I am. And we are invited to believe in Him. And like the Jews of that day, He was inviting them to just let go of whatever they were holding on to with regard to Abraham and their rituals and all their little merit badges. And he said, just see that I am. And believe in me. And so we've been saying throughout this study, over and over, he just says, John, should say, says, this is written. I recorded all these things of Jesus that you might believe in him and that you believe and you might have life in his name. In whose name? In his name. I say to my girls all the time, look, I want you to work hard. In this natural world, we're creating God's image to work hard, to achieve. That's a great gift. And we have different abilities. And some, some of you in here are artists, and some of you in here are athletes, and some of you in here have uh, mathematical ability, and some of you in here are like me, and you don't have mathematical ability. You have all different gifts and abilities, and God is delighted as His people use those gifts and abilities and serve and grow and work and strive and struggle But when it comes to the spiritual, the vertical, it's all of grace. It is finished. And it's finished by the one who says, I am. And so you are free to be small. You are free to be finite. You are free to be broken. You are free to be mortal. You are free to be saved. Saved by someone else. By the great I am. You're human, I'm human, so we're going to think about ourselves. That's normal and natural. And as we're thinking about ourselves and struggling through life and trying to, so often trying to make ourselves into a big deal, there is this reverberating call from our God humbling us and just saying, I'm sufficient for you. I am. You don't have to be. I am where true joy and true freedom comes from. 
True satisfaction in life does not come from the conclusion that I am a big deal, but that he is a big deal. 